Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. For a fresh new start MJ Network will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the Good morning everyone, this is Fran Lewis And this is going to be fantastic This is MJ Network, MJ in memory of my sister Marsha Joyce and we have Joshua Hood here, and the book is called The Treadstone Rendition, and wait you see what Adam Hayes is up to. Ten years ago, Adam Hayes was in operation and went south. He got hurt, and ANA, who was there, one of the officers from Afghanistan, Nassim saved his life, and now the favor needs to be returned because Nassim has a problem. So good morning, Joshua, and welcome to MJ Network. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited. You have no idea. Now, Adam Hayes, I've read about him before. I read um, one, the one that came before this, so I got to know him a little bit better. And, of course, I love Jason Bourne. Um, what is the backstory of Adam Hayes? And tell us about Treadstone and Levi Shaw. Hmm. <laughs> well, um, if you're a fan of the movies, I think you'll know a little about, about Treadstone, and um, it is the mm-hmm. world from which Jason Bourne came from. It is a government, um, a subsect of the CIA that uh, takes soldiers and turns them into super assassins who work behind mm-hmm. the scenes for the government. And um, in the Bourne books, we have, uh, you know, Jason Bourne who gets shot and can't remember and the Treadstone series tells the story of a, a man who went through the same training with him. His name is Adam Hayes. Um, but unlike Jason, when he gets out of Treadstone, um, it's not that he can't remember. It's the fact that he can't forget. And he is trying mm-hmm. to navigate his life. Uh, he has a family and um, a young son. And in this book, he just learned that his wife is pregnant with a daughter, and all he wants is to get on with his life, and he somehow keeps getting pulled back in. Hello? Yes, so that's the... Uh, oh, I, I couldn't tell if you heard me. We've been having some trouble with sound once in a while. That's why I get nervous. Like, well, God, don't do this to oh. me. So the prologue really was outrageous. How did you create the prologue, and how does it set the stage for what comes next? Because anybody like Nassim, I mean, I was surprised that he that, that he did what he did. That's amazing. Well, uh, I spent 15 months in Afghanistan uh, as a paratrooper with the 82nd Airborne back yeah. in 2007-2008. And um, mm-hmm. so we developed great relationships with our interpreters and the people, the Afghans who were helping us, and... Um, Nassim is kind of a amalgamation of all the good um, people, allies that we worked with over there and 
um, you know, it's based on certain stories. And so I imagined if you needed to, um, you know, we, we often see these books from the point of view of the American soldiers doing everything. And I thought it was interesting to flip that. And, uh, you know, the idea from the book actually came from watching the fall of, of Afghanistan in 2021. And um, immediately, you know, you had a lot of veterans uh, who were thinking about the debts that they owed to the Afghan nationals who had helped us and put their lives at risk. And so I believe it sets the pace for the entire book because usually you have one of these books where Adam's being chased by someone trying to kill him, but this time it was Adam trying to help someone else who's being chased by that. Well, I've been reading an awful lot of books about Afghanistan and the fall in 2021. I, I'm beginning beginning to understand it a lot more. It's really interesting. It's sad. And it's still sad. It is. It is. And, um, you know, the thing that was so heartbreaking is I have a six-year-old mm. son and a two-year-old daughter. And um, as I try to convey in the book, you, you're having you, – there's such a huge transition for, you know – the we were there for 20 years, so you had an entire almost generation grow up not knowing what how bad the Taliban was. You know, the, the little girls being able to go to school, uh, not having to wear burqas, you know, being able to be citizens of their own country. And then suddenly that was taken away. And just thinking about how that would affect my daughter if I was over there where her future was basically just stolen all of a sudden, um, it really – it was something that was hard to bear and something I tried to make sense of as I wrote this book. Well, it came through, that's for sure. But there were, you know, some Americans that weren't exactly on the up and up. So tell us about Porter and what was his goal. Boy, he really pulled one. Yeah, and, um, you know, that was also very difficult besides having to kind of go back and mm. relive what it was like um, you know, my, I personally and other veterans I've talked to, we sometimes have these reoccurring nightmares where it sounds mm-hmm. funny, but you get called back to have to go to Afghanistan, you know, like, oh, we lost your paperwork. You're actually not out of the military, and you got to go back. And so imagining that, um, you know, what, always you wake up in this cold sweat, and you're like, oh, thank God that was a dream. But then you have on the flip side, you have um, guys like Porter, who they spent, you know, an entire career with the military, but they believed in the mission so much that they went and mm. did another career with the CIA working um, with, uh, you know, trying to combat the Taliban. And, and so it was difficult in the sense that those guys were also patriots too, and trying to write an American bad guy was difficult with that because you don't want to paint them in a bad light. But I, I could imagine a person – who've been there that long losing, you know, their moral compass that they begin to drift into this gray and before they know it, they're kind of, they've turned into a bad guy, but their intentions Mm. were always to be the good guy. And I thought that, you know, showing the two sides of the coin uh, between Adam and him uh, and Mm -hmm. digging into their moral compass uh, kind of provided a balance for the story. Well, it brought light to the fact that my nephew, who's still in the Army, um, I think he has another five or six years. I don't even know how long Robbie's going to stay in. He did two tours in, the, in Iraq and two in, two in Afghanistan. 
he and he actually volunteered, which is scary, really scary, that he that he went there twice. So that that must have been hard. So who is Akhtar Mantor, and who got to him, and first, and why? Well, um, I, I needed some thread to throw in there to kind of concrete what was happening in Afghanistan and what was the future. And I used him to show, um, I guess, the, what the Taliban was doing and how ruthless they were and that they hadn't mm-hmm. really changed a lot. And so um, I think that a lot of people, or maybe the perception was that when we left Afghanistan that, you know, the Taliban had changed and they would go back and kind of be this nicer, kinder, gentler. But, uh, you know, I used that character to show that, you know, um, they used to say a lot, uh, I would hear this phrase, um, you have the watch speaking about the Americans, but we have the time. And they used that strategy to outweigh us. And so they actually never really changed. And it was important, you know, that I try to dispel any, like, pasty daydreams about who we were really dealing with, that this is the same enemy that, you know, uh, attacked the, you know, protected Al-Qaeda and allowed them to attack uh, the World Trade Centers and the Pentagon in 2001. And that they're, they're nothing, nothing has changed. They're not any different than they were. That's what's really sad. And I don't think, you know, as an educator, I mean, we taught everything, but I don't think kids really understand it. I don't think they understand the gravity of the war or understand the history behind it. And that's what's really even scarcer. But and that's one thing that kind of um, is strange. You know, I grew up. My grandfather was in the military. My father was in the military. Um, so mm-hmm. you would hear the stories of Pearl Harbor, and you would hear how back then, you know, it came on the radio, and that was such a huge event that we had been attacked, and um, the stories from Vietnam, and you know, that they're just that they're stories because you're so far removed from it. And I remember where I was. I remember everything about that day, you know, on September 20, you know, uh, September 11th. And I remember how the country just shut mm-hmm. down and all the fear and emotion. But now, you know, that's just kind of a memory. And um, people, I think, have a tendency to rewrite history. They look back at something through the lens uh, and they're like, well, that was bad. That was, that didn't make sense or it doesn't mean anything anymore. But at the time, that was a huge deal, and it remained a huge deal for us. And people say, well, Afghanistan was this forever war. But I think they forget, or it's easy to forget now, unless people like you, educators, and mm-hmm. remind them of you have to put yourself, you know, this generation doesn't know what that was like. There are people that, um, you know, as I was getting out of the military, and there were people that weren't even alive when those attacks happened. This is so sad. I know. And I was in my, I was in the reading and writing staff developer, and then the, I, I was watching with the nurse. It was really weird. She said, what is that? And I watched the first tower, the second tower blow up. And I thought I was watching a movie. It, it didn't dawn on me that it was, it, when it dawned on me that it was real, I was like, oh, my God. And we were, we were locked out in school. We couldn't go anywhere. It was horrible that the kids well, don't yeah, understand the whole country the gra- got locked down. Yeah, and, and I found out, which was even sadder, which was like in September, that one of my students died in the first tower. I, I was like, I was hysterical. Um, 
I said, oh, my God, what what happened? And every year on 9-11, I do a memory of Janine. So everybody should remember. So who was the bag man, and who was involved, and how did he learn about Nassim? That's real. The intel was outrageous. Yeah, and um, that kind of developed from the idea of um, underestimating the enemy and thinking, hey, we're just kind of um, fighting these guys that don't re- that are a bunch of uh, you know tribesmen of backwards because they don't have you know what we have uh, in America, and so mm. but they actually you know as they fought and they learned from us. They um, they develop a a very sophisticated understanding of intelligence and things, and so when they developed special operations communities and capabilities of their own, and so it was. Um, I think you're talking about uh, Muhammad Ghul. He was mm-hmm. um, in yeah. charge of a very. Um, what they called the Blood Brigade, which was their the Taliban's uh, special operations, kind of like our Navy SEALs, and they developed that capability. And they developed all those tactics by watching what we did for 20 years. And so, um, there was a book that I read a long time ago, a Michael Crichton book called Timeline. I don't know if you uh, read that, but it you know it talks about how modern people sometimes. We'll look back at old cultures in the Middle Ages particularly, and they would say, well, they weren't, you know, if I was there, I'd be tougher, I'd be stronger. Uh, They're looking at it through the lens of right now, kind of like that book, the old book, The Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. And they've shown that that bias, you know, is like they were in every way as sophisticated as we were. They just didn't have the technology that we do. And I think – I've tried to show with that character and his capabilities that just because you live in a country without running water doesn't mean that you're not intelligent. And, you know, what happened with Iraq and Afghanistan was that we forced this technological um, advancement. We, we kind of forced mm-hmm. them to catch up to the modern world really quickly, and that was the result. I'm reading an awful lot of books about countries like that. I've just finished one by Peter Estere. I cried when I read this whole book. The boy from Badua. He grew up in Ghana. Mm. And he grew up every morning he, when he was age five and above. He had 13 sisters and brothers. They had to get up every morning and take a pail of water, put it on their head, and go to the river back and forth four times because they had no running water or bathrooms or even light. They had no light bulbs, nothing. So, I mean, I don't think kids today, and, and the education that he finally got was because he pushed himself to to get some there. I don't think kids today understand, you know, what's happening. And then we've got um, Porter. What does Porter learn from Mentor? And how does he learn about Nassim? God, this guy's evil. Well, uh, to him, he's... Nassim is evil because he kind of has caught him in the act of, yeah. um, you know, um, it was strange to me as I wrote it because I was thinking 
as we began in Afghanistan to stop fighting, these these guys went from one day that was their job to uh, you know kill Taliban sympathizers, etc., mm. to the next day they weren't doing that. And so I I was able to stumble upon a, a lot of articles where they were investigating these units um, called the Zero units that were led by men like Porter. So they were CIA-backed units of Afghan commandos who would go around and do these missions. And and towards the end of the war, there was a lot of outcry that they were doing these illegal things. Um, But someone in the Afghan government had okayed these missions to go in at night and kill the Taliban. And um, so one day, I I don't know, for me it just kind of struck me that one day you're fighting a war and it's okay to kill the Taliban. The next day you're at peace with them and it's not okay. Yeah. I try to put myself in that mindset of, like, what would that be like? And, you know, as to your earlier point, I think that we forget how good we have it here. And there are times mm-hmm. where I find myself complaining because I'm, you know, having to wait too long at Starbucks or, like, I had to get mm-hmm. out of my car and go into instead <laughs> of being able to get in the line. And, but then you have these other countries out there um, who don't have running water, who don't have education. And, you know, one thing especially that's very important is, you know, education, knowledge is power. And mm-hmm. in America, we all have the ability because of school and things like that to start out at any level and to become whatever you want. It's easy to forget that the rest of the world isn't like that. So when you have people condemning the war in Afghanistan, and I'm not saying it was perfect, but we brought that ability for young girls who weren't allowed to read, weren't taught to read, weren't allowed to go out of the house. We brought the ability for them to be doctors and lawyers and stuff. And I think that was the real heartbreaking thing yeah, that I try to run through the thread of this book was that um, good or bad, we did bring a level of life to them that they have never had and probably won't have again. And for me, I guess it was worth it knowing that we were able to, you know, touch so many lives in a positive way. I I agree. I mean, I, I, my father used to say to me, knowledge is power. And my, my aunt told me, you'll be an educator. She told me this when I was three. I think I was older, but she, or whatever, she didn't tell me. And yeah, I learned how to read when I was three. And I'm saying school is, was the, my very, very place to be. I mean, I have a lot of degrees and stuff, and going back to school was like fun. I don't kids appreciate it this anymore. All I hear about is, oh, I have homework. I don't want to do this. I said, what if you lived in a country where you couldn't do it? How would you feel then? And it, it's, it's sad that they don't appreciate the fact that they get all of this for free. And school, I, I still love going to school. I still love doing research. So Nassim... You grow, he grows on you. Why does he call Hayes, and what happens? And what happens when they're trying to get his family out in him? Well, he calls Hayes because he is working as a doctor and is kind of forced mm. to um, help the Taliban. And his story yeah. is one that's kind of um, pivotal, I guess, in this what we're talking about, where he grew up poor and through the Americans being there, was allowed to, you know, eventually go to medical school, and then he was trying to give back to his community. And then, um, you know, he gets 
into some trouble helping uh, some people that were actually wounded Taliban because, you know, here, uh, my my mother and my wife were both a nurse, and they, they swear that oath of first do no harm. And so he's mm-hmm. doing his job, even though he doesn't particularly like the Taliban, and then uh, he takes pictures of something he's not supposed to, so then he becomes a target. And mm-hmm. um, the book, I think, could have been – it was complicated enough, and maybe there was enough action and tension to have Adam just trying to get him out. But when you throw a family into it and he's trying to get his kids out, I think it adds a layer of tension to it uh, where it's, you just can't get one person out. You have to get the entire family out. And it made it more difficult having people that couldn't defend themselves, and Adam Hayes was in charge of helping them because in essence he is a protector and I, I like that theme I like that scene too but I felt bad for him because he had to ask for help from somebody and I don't think his wife was too thrilled either <laughs> I, get, I get a feeling that she wasn't thrilled that he was going to help so he he had to go to Mumbai I've just read a book by a girl that was for, is from Mumbai and what's happening there. So where was his family, and how come he had to go there? Well, uh, if you the series focuses on Adam Hayes leaving Treadstone because yeah. Um, yeah. he has a family, and he just has his son, and basically through his post-traumatic stress, his wife thinks that he doesn't want him around his kid because, he, you know, he's – has violent outbursts. So the entire series is about him working mm. on himself to not to get rid of the things that he learned and were done to him during the CIA and become a better person, a better parent. And so his family is actually he's moved his family to Arizona, and um, you know they're growing up. He's made that successful transition to being a good father, and but he still has to work. So he's in Mumbai doing. Um, kind of a low-level security job, and mm-hmm. then he gets this call. And so um, the idea there was Adam Hayes, I've always imagined him as what would happen to someone who left a place like Treadstone. You know, you, you don't have like a 401K plan, and you, don't, you can't really put that on a job application, and you're a government assassin, and you're trying to raise your family, so you'd have to use the only skills you have left. And um, I thought that having, you know, obviously your wife would be very worried about you, especially after what happened to them in the previous mm-hmm. book. But when you have a kid on the way, she's going to become even more worried because, she's, you know, and I thought that added a ratchet up the tension. Yeah, well, the son wanted him to come back for his birthday, too. So that even put more tension That's right. on him to, to get it done, I remember. Because I, I know how it feels to have no have not have a parent there. It's the most horrible feeling when the person has to work or they or they happen to pass away right before your birthday or right after. It gets gets to you. Now, this, this part I've heard from before, and I know that there are people that have, like, voices. He had a voice in his head. And how does it direct his mind's action and thinking? Because that, that's not the first time I've heard that. Well, the voice was, if you watch the read the Bourne books or seen the movie, and I try to base it the, a mm-hmm. lot of on what happened from the movie because I thought more people would have seen that than perhaps read the book. 
the voice, it, what they do at Treadstone is they use uh, a program to basically uh, brainwash these guys into becoming these mm. assassins who they don't ask questions. And I didn't really know, like, how do you show that? How do you show the dichotomy between what he was and who he wants to be? And so the voice, I thought of that as being like a physical manifestation of the training and brainwashing that he had become. So it's almost like this, you know, this computer in his brain that's telling him you should do this, you should do that. And it worked really well when he was on Treadstone actively Mm. doing operations. But, you know, once he leaves and he wants to start off with this new life, that becomes kind of this dark passenger who is Mm. always intruding on his thoughts and, so it's almost like he's fighting with himself, the, you know, this mental internal conflict of what he's been trained to do and what he wants to do now and what he knows is right now. That's hard because you have a conflict within yourself. That's hard. So who who is Monroe? Now, he, um, Adam Hayes agrees to get Nassim out, but who is Monroe? And then the scene at the medical clinic got me, let me tell you. In a good way or a bad way? Interesting way. It was scary. It was scary. Warduck well, is the catalyst for the events to follow. So I know that in the in the clinic was interesting. That was an interesting scene. And uh, I appreciate that. I, I worked really hard on that. And Monroe works for another government agency, and um, he's Adam Hayes' only way to get into um, Afghanistan. So Hayes kind of has to blackmail him to do the right thing, and that rubs him a little bit the wrong way, but it allows – that was one of the hard things. Is like, how do you figure out how to get this guy from Mumbai into Mm. Afghanistan when there's not really any Americans around and he's not getting the help that he would have had in the past? And so I developed him, Monroe, to kind of walk us through that. I, I thought it was probably the only logical way I could come up with it. Well, the interesting part was Nassim wasn't stupid, but he took a picture of Porter, which is really good. So what is the importance of the Eagle base to Porter? And then what happens when he switches sides, or does he switch sides? <clears throat> well, the Eagle base is actually a real place. Um, mm. it, it was started off, they called it the Salt Pit. Uh, they've also called it the Brickyard, but that was the CIA's first base in Afghanistan, and um, that is where they kind of trained and operated this shadow army. And so it was literally the one of the last bases that they had there, and so um, the CIA was one of the – they were instrumental in getting people out of Afghanistan when mm-hmm. it was falling, and the fact that it was in Kabul, like we used to have um, – a base there, but it had been closed. And so it was kind of this island where he was safe. Uh, but then as people began to figure out that he wasn't doing, he wasn't on the up and up, um, he had to kind of venture out from that more. And he found himself, you know, caught in kind of the same position Adam Hayes was, where he's just surrounded by enemies. And even though he is a bad guy, he still would be considered a target because he's an American. And so it was dangerous for him to begin to 
um, you know, he had all these assets and ability at the beginning, and then at the end he has nothing, and everybody's kind of after him, but he's trying to clear his name. Uh, all the while, he's doing kind of these – he's spearheading these terrible things, and he's trying to clean up his mess, and so it was a convoluted thing. Well, there's something else. I mean, I don't know how many books I've read in the last 10 years, maybe 20,000, seriously. My husband's keeping count. Then I get into trouble every single day reading all this. That's amazing. I bet you have huge bookshelves. You know what I do? You know what yours is going to be? Well, my next-door neighbor is in the hospital, but I won't say why. So I texted her yesterday, and I said, I've got the Treadstone rendition for you, rendition for you by Robert Ludlum's series by Joshua Hood, and I have Patterson for you. And she said, I love you forever. <laughs> So normally you can't go wrong with I, Patterson, can you? Yeah, normally I, I give them to my dermatologist, and there's a bag inside of about thirty books that he's getting that I read in the last three weeks. So, but this one's going next door. She's going to be happy when she comes home tomorrow. She needs reading material, and what better way to get it than from me? Why buy it? I mean, you can, but it's much easier this way. <laughs> so, something else I know from my nephew and from other people. When they come back from the Army or the Navy or mission, they get panic attacks. So in Chapter 8, it was set off. And how does he get evaluated? How do you stop that? Well, um, you know, the VA is working hard on trying to deal with this. And, you know, the panic attacks, the PTSD mm. is nothing new. Uh, when I was getting out of the Army, it wasn't really talked about. Um, mm. And... I got out in 2009, and back then it was still, you know, you were considered weak if you had that. Or And now they're realizing that everybody has it. And what, if I could get anything out, any, uh, you know, mm. bit of knowledge out to any listeners or readers, mm. uh, PTSD and panic attacks aren't just for people that are in the military. You know, you can have PTSD from a car wreck or, or a traumatic mm-hmm environment or experience and mm-hmm. you know it's very important that everybody gets help and I've had panic attacks I've been diagnosed with PTSD and through the journey of healing I've been able to meet other people and you know it was important to me to write those scenes in a book and maybe someone could read it and say you know I have that maybe I should get some help uh, because it doesn't have to be that way but um, you know we have there's such a uh, you know, a huge suicide rate among veterans, and I believe that it's kind of uh, after COVID and everything else where people are dealing with this trauma, they're dealing with this isolation, it's easy just to think that it'll never get better. But, you know, if you get help and learn to deal with it, you can go back to, you know, the way things were, I guess, and have a great life and enjoy all the great things that we have. So it was important to show him having that, this big tough dude, having that these issues and how he had learned to deal with them and cope with them. It is hard. I was in a car accident when I was seven, 16 and a half, and my sister was getting married right after, and I didn't drive after that. It was a head-on collision, and it was scary because I was in the back of the car in the middle, and all of a sudden, the next thing I knew, I was out on the ground, and I had amnesia. I, I didn't even know what happened to me. I was out like a leg. Then I forgot who everybody was, and it was scary. So I never drove again. 
Because I, I and I know that was wrong because I said I don't want to ever have to take somebody's life in my hand. So it can happen, and it, it does play on yeah, your mind sometimes. Yeah, it happens every day. It yeah, does. It's, it's, and, you know, I think that drawing the line between oh, I didn't go to war, I don't need help or whatever, um, yeah. is doing everybody a disservice because you know you've lived it, you know what it's like, and. Yeah. It's not like you could just tell your brain, hey, that's silly. Your brain is trying to protect you, and it does things that those panic attacks are basically, hey, that was scary. We don't want you to do that again. But it also, and I imagine that really affected your quality of life, not being able to drive, having to ask somebody to take you places. And Yeah, um, it, di- it did, and I hated taking the bus, but I had no choice because I, I needed to go three buses to get to school, to college. And after a while, I learned, you know, how to dial the cab service. And then my classes were like from eight in the morning till ten at night. Seriously, I took wow. language at night. So yeah, so I, you know, smiled at the guy next to me. Would you drive me home? And told my father, you know, I was on the way. Well, he would have to pick me up because there was no way I was coming home by, you know, bus at eleven or twelve o'clock at night. So yeah. So why does he call? This took a lot out of Adam. Why does he call Levi Shaw? What does he ask? Because that took a lot out of him. Well, typically, you know, these guys aren't one to ask for help. And, um, yeah, especially him. He'd hope that, right, and he'd hope that, you know, Levi Shaw, who's in charge of Treadstone, would have helped him out. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, you know, it didn't work. He that was kind of against the American agenda at the time, the government's agenda. So um, it took a lot, I guess, you know, dealing with the fact that he needed to go make good on this promise, but also when he tried to call in a favor, which was hard for him to do, it was kind of shut down. And that emotional toll was something that I tried to string along through the entire book to, to show that, you know, even though he's just, awesome badass character he um still has the emotions and the thoughts and the fears that everybody every one of us has well if he didn't if he took it too lightly and he didn't have the panic attacks and he didn't get really upset it wouldn't be real it wouldn't be exactly how some people experienced it it wouldn't be so realistic and it wouldn't have caused me to sit down and read the book in an hour and a half seriously and not put it down and that does happen. Well, that's great to hear. Yeah. Thank you. And it's always good to know that readers, you know, discerning readers pick up on those little things because at times it's like, well, this is kind of hard or this evokes thoughts of my own that are uncomfortable. Maybe I shouldn't put it in, but, you you know, I feel you owe a reader the best experience possible. And I know that readers like you, they you know, it's a skill and art form to find, to kind of mine the little diamonds out of these stories, especially when you read so many. And I hope that that's what separates the great stories just from the good ones is you take a little extra time to try to go deeper into the characters and the scenes. A lot of people don't, but before I forget, on the I have three shows next week. People don't ask me how I did this. On the 11th, um, the Wayward, Wayward Target with Susan Allett. On the 12th, somebody we all love and adore, Jim Nesbitt, Dead Certain Doubt. And on the 13th, wow. the reason, yeah, he's hot. <laughs> the reason why I can read a book and understand it is because my 
professor from college, my reading professor and I, um, going to do a discussion on questioning and understanding how to ask the proper questions, teachers to ask proper questions, grades K to 12, and he puts me on the spot. He makes the agenda. He asks me the questions, and I have to answer them. And we talk about um, well, differentiated. Yeah, it's, it's hard, yeah. Different different types of questioning and comprehension skills, and he's the reason why I'm smart. I tell everybody, Dr. Cavuto, he's coming on uh, the next week, on Thursday, on the 17th. Somebody else we all know and love, John Gilstrap, White uh, Smoke. Oh, I love John on, Gilstrap. He is amazing. And where it gets even better, uh, Charles Salzberg, Man on the Run, on the 20th, on the 25th, Robert Dugoni. His new one. Oh, wow. Her, his, her deadly game. And then to end the month, what better way than to? You had your interview with him yesterday, John Bentley, Forgotten War. That's, that is April. Oh, man. You have and that, a knockout lineup. And Don Bentley is just, he is such a talented author, such a great wordsmith, just with Dagoni and everybody else that you mentioned. Um, but, you know, him and, uh, you know, John Gilstrap, I read everything mm-hmm. he's written. He was one of the reasons that I got into the genre reading his books. Just amazing talent. And Don Bentley, it's just amazing to see his meteoric rise, how he's gone, uh, just burst on the scene and now is at the helm of two of the most, uh, you know, massive um, book series with Clancy and Vince Flynn, and it's just, yeah. uh, I'm so proud of him. He's such a good friend, and I'm just, you know, honored to know him and just always blown away by his talent. They, they are, they are, everybody is so great. And then when they said they would interview with me, I go, well, that's not bad, pretty good for me. <laughs> so how does Adam get the fake paper? This always interests me. How do you get fake papers and in real life, how does it, how do you do that? That's interesting. Well, I, I've never had to get fake papers, thank goodness. But I've, you know, I did some research, and I, um, I, uh, you know, that's why he kind of has to go into his old contacts and get somebody who has the ability, um, because you know, researching that, I found how. Um, sophisticated, you know, these passports are. And it's kind of like money. You know, you look at a $100 bill and compared to what they were 20 years ago, mm-hmm. there's a lot going on there with holograms and hidden this and black light that. And um, so, you know, back when Robert Ludlum was writing these books, you, you know, you could make up a scene of some, you know, art, ex-art artist, forger that's in this back room smoking a cigarette using a magnifying mm. glass and an exacto knife but now because of technology it's become a lot more difficult so uh, that was one of the challenges in writing this book is like how would he get papers when you know as a you know a spy he would have those presented to him but that was part of him using his trade craft and his contacts to jump this hurdle where he, the first thing he would have to do is without Levi Shaw and Treadstone helping him, was figure out how can I get into this country without immediately being arrested. Well, there are people that do it. That's what's even scarier, that there are people that actually oh, know yeah, how to do that. Oh, smart. I know. It gets scary. So, here I go. Where am I here? Um, 
Who is Seth Brooks, and how did you get him to to break the lock? And where was Seth supposed to go? Well, Seth was, uh, I think, another character that, uh, you know, he that Adam Hayes had to leverage on, and it was interesting because every one of those guys had their own agenda, you know, and so in a way, they were using Hayes. Um, and Hayes thought he was kind of controlling them, but they were, in a way, using him to um, put their own mark on this, what was going on. And so he was another one of those guys that was a shady um, person who had had a past in that area, and um, he also helped facilitate getting Hayes over there, but... At the end of this book, it's kind of like, man, you can't trust Mm. anybody, can you? Yeah, I know. I know. And and that's that's scary. So, what does someone tell him before he leaves? And how does this affect his ex-wife? That's scary, too. And, of course, one of my favorite characters in a book is a dog. Well, yeah, you know, it's you throw a dog into a book and it's automatically, you know, you yeah. kind of get a few extra points because I don't know too many people who um, don't like dogs. And, um, you know, mm. his, Seth's, um, his wife works with the CIA and, you know, it is um, – I don't want to give away too much of the, the no, plot. No, don't say, no. All yeah. these guys are – kind of interconnected and the webs that you know 20 years over in a country we allow um, you're kind of limited only by your imagination of how you would you know um, put all these people together and what was interesting about her is that in a way she was kind of she could have been the early warning sign about what Porter was doing or what Mm. he would have done and uh, the fact that it was overlooked Uh, for whatever reason, um, allowed uh, the reader to see this kind of growing threat on the horizon. I'm trying to, I've got like 30 more questions. I'm not going to get, oh, my God, I'll do my best I can here. So is who is Igram, and what is his role with Porter, and why does Adam go to Pakistan? There's a lot of written about Pakistan lately, too. Yeah, and that um, what was interesting is you know Pakistan and Afghanistan their their histories mm-hmm. and their futures are so intertwined, and um, the only way with there no, being no American bases in um, Afghanistan, he would have to go through Pakistan, which is dangerous in itself. Besides having to getting the papers and everything else, um, it was um, that was probably the most challenging part of writing the book, just research wise, because I didn't know too much about Pakistan and the airport that I knew of was the older airport and luckily I found a video it's pretty interesting to any writers or people out there who need to know something about this like the perfect scene of something like that Mm. have an airplane fly in and you see the area from the air well I didn't I've never flown into Pakistan so luckily there are pilots around the world who literally videotape themselves flying into foreign airports. See, I got to literally watch a pilot fly in on approach to mm. uh, the Peshawar airport and taxi up to the terminal. And when he did, I was like, wait, that's not 
the pictures that I've been seeing of um, the terminal, they, they look like they've updated it. And I'd already written the scene where he goes in and the terminal's all dusty and old. But luckily I found that and I caught it because they had redone everything where it used to be this open air type of terminal. Mm. Now they'd, they'd enclosed everything and it, it was very modern. So um, I got lucky with that because I would have left, you know, if anybody had traveled in that area in the last 10 years, I'm like, wait, that's not what it looks like or smells like. I know there are a lot of, lot of when I do read a book like this or anything about uh, Afghanistan or, I just finished reading of Swift Sword by Doyle Glass. It's about what really happened on September 4th, 1967 in Vietnam. The, fifth, the, the war from the 4th to the 15th. God, that was scary. And I did look up everything to make sure that my facts were right and that his facts were right. I do a lot of research. It's fun. So you yeah, that's um one of the reasons you, you, your show is so great is you go the extra mile to you don't just like oh I read this and I assume everything's right you know you use your education and your yeah. uh critical thinking to really dig into it and keeps us writers on our toes cuz we know we can't slip anything past you yeah wait till they see me on my toes next week <laughs> i have i have about 10,000 papers i have to read to make sure i get it right what can i say but it's worth it. It's worth it. So, what was um, who is what was Jolene's reaction to everything? And in chapter forty, how did you create that scene? And how does little Zara come to the rescue? Well, it's um, an excellent question, and uh, interesting that you picked that one out. But um, <laughs> I thought. You got me on the, the spot here because it's, it's hard to think about uh, something I wrote a year ago. Um, I'm trying to recall the scene. But from the beginning, what I wanted to use Zara for was not just a um, character who was just along for the ride, but I thought it would be interesting to have, um, you know, this very resourceful girl who some might call a child mm. that, to see how, you know, what they see. I've always been fascinated by the little things that my kids pick up on and tell me. Like, oh, Dad, mm. you're going the wrong way or took the wrong turn. I'm like, how do you even know this? You're six years old. And um, mm-hmm. But um, it's interesting to kind of see the world through a child's eyes and to be able to use her, um, you know, to show a different view. And I thought it was kind of cool, and I tried to use her which you wouldn't think that she would have a skill set that would help in a situation, but to help Hayes get through um, some of these issues, like the one you're, you know, this thrilling scene you're talking about in the hospital. Yeah. um, It was like, you know, it would have been easy just to write, oh, Hayes handles everything, but I I tried from the beginning to have her play a a bigger role in it uh, to help him out. So where it looks at the beginning like she's going to be – you know, just baggage. She ends up being an ally. That's what I liked about it, because most kids, they they just write them as little whining things, and they can't do anything. Oh, I'm going to give them a lollipop and send them somewhere. But when you make a child intelligent and can do something, that's when I said, I, this is really different. This is good. That That's what made the difference for me. So now we've got this the uh the what is the significance of the video Porter watches, and what is his reaction 
Well, the video um, is of what he had, I believe, if we're talking about the same thing, is kind of the impetus of what started this mm-hmm. off. And he goes on the mission at the very beginning, and he thought he had gotten away with everything and that, you know, he was scot-free, and then turns out someone had shot this video. And now he knows that, you know, he's got to get this video, find out who has it and who took it, or, you know, he could find himself in jail. And, um you know, uh, speaking of kids again, like I said, I have a six-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter. And to watch the different ways their minds work, how attention to mm. detail little girls are, um, you know, maybe like I'd imagine my son in that scene just bouncing off the walls and like, hey, let's go do this. But uh, my daughter, on the other hand, you know, she she's more cerebral and um I think that, like you, just like you said, um, using her as an asset because she's not just whiny; she is paying attention and everything else. Um, it's always striking the things they pick up. Mm. I know they pick on me because I don't forget anything. It's scary. I mean, yeah, I feel like I'm forgetting everything. I'm, yeah, I know. You got my, me trying to husband, remember what I wrote a year ago. <laughs> I, I remember what I what he wore when I met him a lot of years ago. I could tell you exactly what he wore and what time he came. <laughs> he, he can't stand up because I forget nothing. I said, at least, you know, what can I say? So why does Hayes have to go to Jahalabad? And when Ghoul, I didn't like that guy, Porter and Hayes collide, how did you create the final confrontations without getting it, giving it away? Because that's well, the hard I, part. I planned, yeah, I, and, you know, usually... You, you have some authors that talk about, you know, you have the pantsers who write by the seat of their pants and the ones who outline and plot everything. And mm. this is one of the books where I typically just write by the seat of my pants or what I call organically. But this mm-hmm. was one of the times where I had to sit down and write everything out in an outline. And I found it pretty helpful because, um, you know, it, for me, um, and this came from a good friend of mine, Ryan Steck, who wrote um, a great book called Fields of Fire, uh, and then he's got another book coming out. But he was telling me one day, you know, there's a big difference between what the reader knows and the character knows. And um, it's hard because you could just put something into a book and say, okay, the reader knows this, but the character doesn't know. But then there's times when you want to trick both of them. And that's, for me, where you have to use an outline because I'm not smart enough, mm. smart enough to figure that out. Well, I, I'm terrible because I just sit down and, on my computer. I write horror, and I write, which is not as good as all of you write, but I try. And then I tell my um, editor, fix it. Don't bother me. I don't read it over again. Leave me alone. And then I read it back. <laughs> and, yeah. And that's what I did for my last book, Accusations, told from the point of view of the dead body that tells the, tells the story because they were wrongly accused or their voice was silent. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's what I was told. I mean, I have five five-star reviews, which I don't know. I'm going on tour with Partners in Crime in another two weeks, and I'm nervous because I don't know how other people are going to feel about it. But we'll see. So what is the final outcome for Hayes? And where do you see him next? Because the last page says a lot without telling anybody what it says. Well, I wanted 
one of the issues – well, I don't want to give away too much, but – No, um, because we can't do that. No. Um, and you ask these questions where I had to keep catching myself not to answer the full question. Um, <laughs> I'm not trying to dodge you, but I know yeah. that I'm like, man, like I want to talk about this, but somebody hadn't read the book, so I have to – I don't want to give this away. So I feel like yeah, there are Adam A is trying to be interrogated. Uh, so – if I sound like I'm dodging this question, I am. Um, but I wanted an ending that hooked the reader and had them looking forward to the next book. And um, mm-hmm. there's an issue that's ran through all these books where, um, you know, I've been lucky in my career to have been able to bounce from series to series. And um, I just started uh, another series with Blackstone called um, The Guardian, which comes out in June. And then I'm writing oh, another book. Oh, I have to book. get that. Then, they didn't ask me to get that one yet. Well, it's not out yet. Um, I will ask them to send you an advanced copy. It comes out in June. But um, I don't understand how some of these great writers continue to write, uh, you know, have a series that goes 12 or 20 books. Because mm-hmm. for me as a reader and just a person, it's, you know, it's hard. You know as a writer that – they want to see what happens next. But if you have a guy who, like, oh, he got out of this organization, but he keeps getting pulled back in, I always worry, well, how long is the reader going to, like, hang out with me being like, oh, here we go again. He's doing this, but then he gets pulled back into that. And so um, mm-hmm. needless to say, the story here was um, solidifying Hayes' future with Treadstone, what would happen with that? And uh, one of the things that came out of that and overflowed to the books with Blackstone was I felt I did it as much as I could to create in Hayes a character who didn't fit, like, the typical mold of, like, these Mm -hmm. books. Uh, But in one thing, I became fascinated with, like, how – what other type of stories can you tell? So with The Guardian, um, the main character, Travis Lane, is an Air Force PJ, and his job is primarily to save lives instead of take it. And But he has the training where he knows how to shoot and everything. And so with that book, I wanted to create a mix between one of my, um, you know, uh, all-time favorite book movies and I'm uh, romancing the stone with Mm -hmm. a kind of a seal team six thriller. And that's what I've done with the guardian is and introduced this story where you have uh, a guy with a lot of skills who meets a very capable woman who challenges him um, in what he does and believes. Cause I, I don't believe there's too many thrillers out there where you have these strong, female characters, and in in The Guardian, I was allowed to do that, create a strong female character who challenges the the main character, you know, um, in ways that are sometimes uncomfortable, but that she's an equal in this, and so um, with the book after that that I'm working on now called Burnout, I've moved away from the military thriller, and I'm working on this guy's a smoke jumper who uh, was a, uh, happened to be a criminal and um, try to tell stories that are action and use the action that I guess I've become known for, but outside of just the military war 
uh, genre because the one striking thing about this book is, you know, since uh, September of 2001, we've been in this global war on terror. So you have all mm-hmm. these books that are Tell set in Iraq, it. Afghanistan, Syria. Well, and I, I feel that maybe the audience and perhaps some of the writers are getting tired of that. But now that's over. You know, there is no war on terror. There are no troops in Afghanistan or Iraq. So you have to, for me, the challenge was how do you tell stories if you want to keep writing uh, in the future? Uh, because let's admit it, like this whole military genre, is, it's kind of packed with great writers telling more or less the same stories with, you know, Navy SEALs or Delta guys or whatever. And it, I was challenged to try to write a book outside of that uh, very comfortable um, confines that I've been writing in since I published my first book. And so that's to answer, but really not answer your question. That was the ending <laughs> of the treadstone was uh, this book was the realization that that chapter in America's history and in writing and everything else is now over. What do you, what do you do next? That's well. That's exactly. I'm glad you. I'm glad you're changing up because I have read so many books that are the same. I could tell you them from cover to cover. So where can everybody find out about you? Um, my website is www.joshuahoodbooks.com, and I promise uh, I'm going to update that soon. I've been busy. Um, also, you know, the Treadstone rendition is available everywhere. Great books are sold, and The Guardian is out on pre-sale or pre-order right now, so you can go on to Amazon or any website and learn a little bit about that book, and you can or go to Blackstone Publishing's website and learn about it. And I just really, really appreciate you having me on here this morning. This is a great conversation. I, I am really enjoying myself, and this is great because my, my sister died right before she died. She said, I weigh, I weigh 103 pounds for whatever reason. And she said, you weigh like 200 pounds, but there was a reason for that, too. I was eating too much because my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And she said, why don't you decide to write, do interviews and talk to people that write books? And I looked at her and I said, you really are disturbed, aren't you? How am I supposed to do that? And I did something that took a lot of guts. I emailed Tess Gerritsen, <laughs> for real, and I said, how would you like to be on my radio show, my first guest? And she did. It's like, oh, my God, wow, I actually did that. Yeah. And she's been on. She's going to come on in October probably for the next one. She comes on twice a year. I was like, that took guts. So I did. I even did that in January. I interviewed Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child, uh, the cabinet of Dr. Lang. And now I got you. I, I was like so excited. This is so exciting. But thank you so much. And let me know when you want to come on again. I'll be more than happy to talk about The Guardian whenever you want to talk about it. And everybody, it's a beautiful day outside. Have a great day, and bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.